Friends, if you want to take your Bible out with me and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. If you're looking at the Bible in the chairs in front of you, that's found on page 895. Uh, Page 895, let me encourage you to keep your Bible open uh, throughout our time this morning and follow along. Let me just pause as you do and let's, uh, let's ask God together for his help as we consider his word. Let's pray. Lord, your word is truth. We thank you for the gift of your word, and we pray now that you would sanctify us, set us apart by your truth. We pray that we would not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds, as only you can do through your word. Do that, we pray. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been working our way through John's gospel this year, and and we saw in chapter 1, verse 1, John begins his gospel this way. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in those first 18 verses, the prologue of John's gospel establishes the fact that Jesus is God. That Jesus came from God, sent not only as God's rescue plan for sinners, but as sent from God the Father to show us God the Father. That's why he's called, that's why Jesus is called the Word. He is God's supreme communication to make himself known to the world. Now, Historically, God gave the Jewish people his law, the temple, the sacrificial system, the Passover. Everything that we see in the Old Testament was given to the Jewish people as signposts to prepare them for the coming Christ. And so the Jewish people would be looking for the Christ. They would, if, anyone, if anyone was to see Jesus then when he comes on the scene, if anyone was to see him as the Christ, we expect the Jews to see they have all this, all this information, all these signposts pointing forward to Jesus. But their response in the Gospel of John is anything but a celebration. Over and over we see their reaction to be one of hostility and one of rejection. In fact, in chapter 8, after they called Jesus demon-possessed, by the end of chapter 8, the Jews have picked up stones and they're preparing to kill Jesus. The Jews' spiritual blindness would not be something that the initial readers of John's gospel would gloss over. This this hard-heartedness, this spiritual blindness would be shocking to John's readers. Because if, if these people, with all the information they had, if they did not receive Jesus, with all the signposts, if they were blind, then how is anyone supposed to see the truth? That's what John chapter 9 is about. So let me begin by reading uh, to us John chapter 9. I'm going to read the whole chapter to kind of give us an overview where we're at. So if you will, follow along. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or that his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while, I, while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Well, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go, to Siloam and washed. And so I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been 
formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him and how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who, who you say that was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He, He answered, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. They cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said to him, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Amen. When you uh, are in your car and you are on 301 and you pull up to the stoplight, I think it's safe to say that you want certainty that the car will stop if you push the brakes, right? If you go to Six Flags and you're on a roller coaster and it's about to drop 400 feet on a vertical drop, I think it's safe to say that you want certainty. You want to know that the harness is going to hold you. When it comes to things that are important to us, when it comes to things that we rely on, it's natural for us to want, to long for certainty. We want a place to stand that provides stability in our life. I wonder if after this past year and a half, you can recognize a longing for certainty in your heart with all that's uncertain. If the Jews with all that they knew from the Old Testament, with all the signposts pointing towards the Christ, if they rejected Jesus, how can we then have certainty that Jesus is the Christ? They had all the information. They had all the Old Testament. They had all these signposts. They should be the ones who saw, and if they don't see, how can we know that he is the Christ? Well, John 9 makes it clear. But the reason that folks reject Jesus is because of a sinful heart. It's not because Jesus is false. And to have spiritual eyes that actually see, Jesus must open our eyes. That's the big idea of John 9. 
I'm going to give it to you up front this morning. To have spiritual sight, Jesus must open our eyes. To have spiritual sight, Jesus must open our eyes. With that big idea in mind, then, I think that John 9 serves as a warning and an encouragement. It's a warning for us as the readers so that we don't respond with the same blind hard-heartedness that we see in this text. And it's also an encouragement for those who are Christians, for those who have come to see what they were once blind to, to rejoice and to give praise to God that now we see. Because God is the one who opens the eyes of the blind. With that in mind, what I want us to do is walk back through the text again to make sure that we're seeing this rightly. And then we'll end our time this morning by trying to apply the truths of John 9 to our our lives together. So for our purpose, John 9 breaks up into three different sections, three different scenes. Those will be our points this morning. Scene number one is verses 1 through 12, a miracle. Scene number one, a miracle. Scene number two is verses 13 through 34, a denial. A denial. And scene number three is verses 35 through 41, worship. A miracle, a denial, and worship. So let's revisit scene number one, a miracle. Look at verse one. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with his saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Again, what we see in these first 12 verses is a miracle. It is extraordinary. It's a miracle, an amazing miracle. Don't just gloss over that. If you've heard this story before, don't gloss over that. This is an amazing miracle. But also, remember, we've seen miracles all throughout John's gospel. And in in, in John's gospel, the miracles have a purpose. That's why they're called signs. These miracles that Jesus performs are meant to be signposts that show the reader who he is. That's why in verses three through four, he refers to them as the works of God. His miracles are not just tricks that he's performing as a magician to entertain people. His miracles are signs that have a work to do. That work, namely, is to bear witness that God the Father has sent him. These miracles show his identity as being God in the flesh. Now, if, if you know the, the story of creation in Genesis, Genesis 2, 7 tells us that the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so with that in mind, the detail that Jesus chose to spit in the dust and make mud from that that spittle and, and, and dust, that seems to be an echo of this creation account back in Genesis 2. That points to his identity. This miracle points to his identity as being God in the flesh who has the authority not only to create by his word, but to recreate what is broken because of sin. We also see that this, this, this work, that these signs that he's, he's performing is an urgent task. We've got to perform these works while it's still day, he says. The day refers to Jesus' earthly ministry. Because as long as he is on the earth doing his earthly ministry with his disciples, he, has, he is the light of the world. As long as he's there with them, it's daytime. Night is coming. And it's just around the corner because when he's betrayed and taken to the cross, darkness will settle over the earth. That's night. And so he knows that the cross is coming and there's an urgency to this task of doing the work that God has sent him to do to reveal himself and reveal his father to those who are around. But notice also that this is not just an urgent work, it's also an inclusive work. Notice the pronouns in verse four. Instead of saying, I, Jesus says, 
we, don't just gloss over that, we, in speaking to his disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me. Jesus includes his disciples in these works that glorify God. The blind man does not yet know who Jesus is, but by giving him a command, go wash in the pool, Jesus is inviting this blind man to follow him. He's inviting this blind man to be his disciple, his follower. Now Jesus used spit to make the mud that he put on the guy's eye, on his eyes. That's a little gross, right? And in knowing that, the blind man could have walked off in a huff because it's embarrassing. You just spit in the ground and put it on my eyes. I'm not gonna do what he says. Kind of like Naaman in 2 Kings 5 almost walked away from the opportunity to be healed from his leprosy because of his pride. That's, that's what could have happened here. But the blind man was not proud. He was humble. He knew his need. And so instead of arguing with Jesus, he obeyed. And verse seven says, and he came back seeing. Listen, this is not I went to lens crafters and now I can see. This is not nearsightedness being corrected. The man was born blind. He had never seen anything. And now he sees. This is such an astonishing miracle that the neighbors who had seen him in the past, who had seen him grow up, and they knew he was blind, and now he sees, they're so shocked that they have to verify that it's actually him. Look at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, well, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And now, so I went and washed, and I received my sight. So they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Remember, he had never seen Jesus. He was blind when Jesus gave the instructions and Jesus kind of disappears. So where is he? I don't know. I, I couldn't see him when he told me to go, right? Now, remember, the, these neighbors saw the transformation. They had seen this blind man for years begging on the street. The town knew this guy. This miracle was so amazing that a debate breaks out among the town whether it's actually him or somebody who just looks like him. I actually find it amusing that this whole debate, go back and forth, is going on right in front of the man. Because he's like, uh, yeah, it's me, I'm the man. And so they, okay, that's settled. And then they want to know how it happened. And the answer is simple. It was the man called Jesus. This is a miracle, a breathtaking miracle with eyewitnesses, with tangible evidence. The man is right there. And so when something big like this happens in town, it's normal for humans to want to go to the authorities and to say, well, what do you have to say about this? What's your word on this astonishing thing? And we want your word on this situation. And so, starting in verse 13, the crowd, the neighbors, take the man and they go to the Pharisees, who are the religious authorities. What what are they going to say about this? Which brings us to scene number two. Scene number two, a denial. This is verses 13 through 34. Look at verse 13 again. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. If you're familiar with John's gospel, back in chapter five, we saw the same problem. You kind of hear the, the trouble brewing in the background, right? Verse 15, so the the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I wash and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others of the Pharisees said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. The, The Pharisees are split. So verse 17, they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. So we see 
the man had never seen Jesus, but his, his understanding of who Jesus is, it begins to grow, right? Now, this, this interrogation that we see in verses 13 through 17 is the first of three interrogations of this man. The first of really four, if you include the neighbors. And, and the interrogation with the Pharisees kind of has the feel of a Senate hearing on C-SPAN, you know, um, these politicians seated on the platform, high in their big leather chairs, they're looking down at the person who's being interrogated, and it's really intimidating. Immediately, the issue of the Sabbath comes up. And again, this is not the first time that Jesus was in hot water with the Pharisees because of the issue of the Sabbath. He healed a man in chapter 5 on the Sabbath, the paralytic, and as a result of that, they wanted to kill him. By chapter 7, the issue of him healing the, the paralytic in chapter 5 is still being discussed. But in chapter 7, Jesus has explained to them, you are, you are misunderstanding the purpose of the Sabbath. God gave you the Sabbath as a gift to remember and to rest in his delivering, his power to deliver you. And yet you've turned the Sabbath and on it, you've, you, you've flipped it upside down. Rather than being a reason to rest and to, and to celebrate, you've turned it into a spiritual checklist by which you can justify yourself without God's help. You've got this whole thing backwards. So even though Jesus corrected their misunderstanding of the Sabbath in, verse, in chapter 7, they, it, doesn't, it does not stop the Pharisees in chapter 9 from arguing in verse 16. This man is not from God. Why? They won't let it go. For he does not keep the Sabbath. That's the ground that they have for rejecting Jesus. Listen, this miracle is a stubborn miracle. They're trying to get rid of it. They're trying to disprove it. But the the evidence is overwhelming. And they're stuck with this undeniable miracle, which means the Pharisees even themselves are divided over it. But they're not about to give up on trying to discredit Jesus. And so grasping for something to discredit him, they turn to the blind man in, chapter, in verse 17, and, and they ask him, well, what do you say about him? And I think, it's, I think it's their attempt to get him to take a side. They're trying to intimidate him by taking their side so that they can discredit the miracle. But when he refuses to denounce Jesus in verse 17, they kind of push him aside, and they put the parents on trial. Look at verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until... They called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. In a narrative like John's gospel, verse 22 is what's known as an editorial comment. The, the, uh, John, the evangelist, includes that. It's not, if we were watching the story, we wouldn't know this, but he, as the omniscient kind of author of John's gospel, tells us, hey, I want you to know this detail because this is, how, this is what I want you to see. And in verse 22, this editorial comment is meant to highlight how biased the interrogation is. This is not justice. <laughs> this, is, this is a biased interrogation. Because verse 22 tells us that before the, the Pharisees actually considered the evidence, they had already agreed. They had already agreed, before considering the evidence, they had already agreed that if anyone should confess that Jesus is the Christ, he would be put out out of the synagogue. So, that verse shows us that the Pharisees were not interested in the truth. The Pharisees were not open to Jesus actually being the Christ. They had already made up their mind. And they were using threats and intimidation to bully anybody in the synagogue who disagreed with them. And so this man's parents, who are being interrogated now, were told that they were, they were fearful, they were scared. But interestingly, even now, this stubborn miracle will not move away. 
and the Pharisees' plan backfires. Because by confirming that this man is their son, by confirming the fact that he was born blind, they're stuck with the stubborn miracle that, yep, he can now see. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> and so in frustration, they move the parents off the, off the witness stand and they call the blind man back up to the stand. Look at verse 24. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though, is that I was blind, and now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Hmm. Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him. They mocked him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet, he opened my eyes. Listen, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could, not, he could do nothing. They answered, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. This is the third and final interrogation in this scene. And the Pharisees, when they, when they demand, give glory to God, that's, that's actually not, a, that's not them saying, um, you know, worship God with us. They're actually saying, it's, it's shorthand for saying, tell the truth, right? Give glory to God, tell the truth. And the tragic irony of that statement is that the blind man is telling the truth. The blind man made to see is giving glory to God. It's the Pharisees who are blind. It's the Pharisees who are failing to give glory to God. When they ask him again, how is it that you're able to see? The blind man is just, he's amazed. Listen, he's been clear how Jesus did it. He said it, this, he said it three times already. And so by the, when they ask him again, it's, it's not that he hasn't been clear. It's not that he hasn't told them. It's, it, what's clear is that they don't want to listen. They don't like his answer. They don't like the truth. No matter how many times they ask him, the miracle will not just disappear. <laughs> and so he says, again, I was blind, but now I see. And I think if this were not so tragic, the repeated questions of the Pharisees kind of didn't work, back up, try again, didn't work, back up, try again, didn't work, back up, try again. The repeated questions of the Pharisees would almost be humorous. And when you read verses like verse 27, the man saying, why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? I mean, it's, it's almost laughable. The man who was a blind beggar just moments before with little to no education, assumedly, puts the Pharisees, the religious authorities, in their place by just simply stating the facts. The miracle's right in front of them. The miracle is not hidden. The miracle is in the open. The miracle has been confirmed by witnesses, neighbors, parents, himself. The miracle, yes, it's extraordinary, but it's not complicated. And so in verse 30, he says, <laughs> you hear his exasperation. This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. Here's the point. The Pharisees have physical eyes that can read the letters on the eye chart. The eye doctor might say, yeah, your physical vision is 20-20. But spiritually, they are blind. Why? Why are the Pharisees who had the Old Testament, the, uh, God had spoken to them from Moses. They were right about that. 
Why then are they blind? Miracles right in front of them. They can't see it, what it's, what it's, what it's testifying to. Why are they blind? Well, one reason is the answer that Psalm 115 gives us. We read together from Psalm 115. Psalm 115 verses 4 through 8 says this. Their idols have mouths, but don't speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. They have noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. Those who make idols become like the idols. Those who trust in them become like the idols they trust. Church, an an idol is anything that we love or trust more than God. An idol is anything that we can't live without. And we're willing to break the rules to get it. Simply put, what Psalm 115 is saying about idolatry is, and our worship, what Psalm 115 is saying about worship is we resemble what we worship. If you worship an idol, you'll become deaf, blind, and mute like the idol. If you worship the living God, you'll be able to see and hear and feel and speak like the living God. We become, we resemble what we worship for good or for bad. So what is it the Pharisees were worshiping? The Pharisees loved to be seen by others. They loved the place of honor at the table. They loved the best seats. They loved the respectful greetings in public. Rabbi, doctor, Pick your title. And Jesus already made clear back in chapter 5, verse 44, John 5, 44. In bowing down to the praise of man, they'd become blind to the light of the world. In bowing down to the praise of man, the Pharisees had become blind to the light of the world. They didn't see Jesus for who he is. They saw Jesus as a threat to their kingdom that they had built. They saw Jesus as a threat to the honor that they lusted for. Scene two ended tragically. The blind man who had been made to see is kicked out of the synagogue. But it's here that we come to our last scene, scene number three, worship. This is in verses 35 through 41. Look again at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. In one day, this man's experience, the blind man had a roller, his day was a roller coaster. He begins the day as a blind man from birth who begs on the street corner. Midway through, Jesus comes to him and gives him sight. Vroom! Amazing! But by the end of the day, vroom, he's kicked out of the synagogue. Up and down goes his day. And in the pain and the chaos and the confusion of it all, I love how verse 35 highlights that Jesus seeks him out. He didn't seek Jesus out. Jesus takes the initiative in love and goes and he finds this man, we're told. 
the physical sight that Jesus had already provided him was an amazing miracle. It was great. But it was nothing compared to the spiritual sight that Jesus now gives him to see himself as the Son of Man. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And his eyes, his spiritual eyes are opened. What is the Son of Man? Well, it it comes from the Old Testament. In Daniel 7, verse 14, the Son of Man is a king who rules forever. He is the forever king and whose rule has no limits. He rules over all peoples, over all nations, without boundaries. But in John 5, and we see this term, son of man, son of man, son of man, all, used all throughout John's gospel. In, this, in the immediate context, John chapter 5, verse 27, we see that the son of man has the final word of judgment. Who's the son of man? He's the king who rules over all without limits, without a, ter- without a, without a, a term limit, and he is given the final say in the final judgment. That's the son of man. So Jesus' question, do you believe in the Son of Man? It's not a question, do you believe that that Son of Man exists? It's it's an invitation, rather, to this blind man to believe. It's an invitation to trust Jesus as that Son of Man, as that King with final judgment. The blind man sees. Not just his physical eyes, he now sees the truth about Jesus And you know what happens when you see the truth about Jesus? You worship. To worship is to be awake to the truth about Jesus. When you see Jesus for who he is, as he reveals himself in the word, you don't have to tell yourself, okay, come on, worship him. No, it just, it happens. He demands our praise in the sense that he is worthy of our praise. To see him, to worship him, is to be awake to the truth of who Jesus is. And that's what happens. What's interesting also is that the Pharisees, they had already declared their judgment of this man. You were born under sin. And they kick him out of the synagogue. But here's the good news. As the king of kings with the final say, the son of man's judgment overrides the flawed judgment of man. And that's what we see happening in the end here. He comes to this man kicked out of the synagogue wrongly and Jesus sees it rightly and he welcomes him in. Praise God that Jesus' judgment overrules the flawed judgment of man. And then verse 39 summarizes what we've seen in chapter nine. Jesus is the light of the world. He said that in chapter eight, verse 12. He says it again in chapter nine, verse five. He is the light of the world. And so for those who are broken, and they know they're broken because of sin, for those who are blind, and they know that they're blind, the light of Christ gives light so that we can see. But the light of the world has an opposite function. For those who are convinced that they already see, that they already know, that they're already good enough, that they're not broken, the light of the world blinds them. That's what we see happening in these Pharisees. Self-sufficiency keeps them from coming to Jesus. Why would I need to come to Jesus? I already see. And so this chapter ends with that very sobering phrase, because they have the sin of unbelief, their guilt remains. I think chapter 9 ends that way as kind of a a, a way to turn the tables on us and say, okay, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with Jesus? This is who he is. This is the truth. What will you do? It's a warning and an encouragement. So what do we do with John 9? How do we apply the truths of John 9 to our lives? Let me just offer four, four applications for us. And the first application is for those who are here or who are listening in and you're not yet a follower of Christ. The application for you, my non-Christian friend, is this. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, I pray that as you hear his word, as you see Jesus revealing God the Father in the pages of Scripture, I pray that you would realize your need for Jesus. 
he came into this world because of our need. Not just that our needs for food or shelter or a new job or to be liked by our friends, but rather the need for our sins to be removed. Because God is our creator, you and I will one day stand before God as our judge and we will give an account of our lives to him. And because God is a holy judge, the only way for us to be right with God is to have all of our sin removed. Because God is holy, he cannot allow even the smallest of sins into his presence. Our sin has to be removed. And what that means for us is that, that that's our greatest need. None of us are good enough. We are the blind man. That's our starting point. We are all born into this world spiritually blind. And as the blind man in John 9 was helpless and could not make himself see, we too cannot make ourselves see. We cannot cleanse ourselves from sin's stain or guilt. But again, the good news that we see in this story is that like the blind man, for those who realize their sin, for those who realize their guilt, for those who realize their helplessness and come to Christ in that way, Jesus says this in Matthew 5, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. To be poor in spirit means that you realize your need, your poverty of spirit, you can't save yourself. So if you come to Jesus, he will not turn you away. So friends, come to Jesus. Ask him to help you to see what you're having trouble seeing right now. Trust in him. Jesus came to die for our sin, and, he came, and then on the third day he rose again for our salvation. He will not turn you away if you come to him. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Application number two. And these last three applications are for everybody in, in the church. Number two, hold to Christ as your anchor. Hold to Christ as your anchor. This is what we sang about earlier, our first song this morning, Christ our anchor. When life feels like a storm, I think it's easy for us to look all over the place for some place to put our feet, some place to, to have confidence, to have sure footing, to find certainty. Because I think, and, and we look around everywhere around us for that sure footing because we think, if I just know enough information, I can prepare for the future. I can predict the future. I can control the future. And we, we, we kind of know better. We kind of live that way anyway. And that's why we begin to obsess about tomorrow until we become anxious about tomorrow. Because we think, if I can just know, I can control But notice how certainty about tomorrow can often be misleading. The Pharisees in verse 24 were certain. They came to the blind man, give glory to God. We know, we are certain that this man is a sinner. Boy, could they not have been more wrong. They trusted in their assessment of Jesus, but they were wrong. There's a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death. And so, friends, the reality of life in this fallen world is that there's going to be times when we are left asking, God, why are you doing this? What are you up to? How long is this going to last? It hurts. You ever asked that? Have you asked that this week? Friends, our anchor is not knowing everything. The anchor that holds you fast is not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow or you and I being in control tomorrow. Our anchor is Christ who does know tomorrow, who does have the power over tomorrow, who's sovereign over all things. And so when we are confronted with our God-given limitations of what we can understand or know, we need to come to God. We need to hold fast to Christ as our anchor. How do we do that? Well, we begin with prayer. Pray with all your heart that God would open your eyes as you read the Bible. Read, pray with an open Bible. Don't just pray without the Bible, don't read the Bible without prayer. Pray with an open Bible. As you read the Bible, pray and ask God to open your eyes and to give you a heart that is willing to do whatever he says is right and wise and good. And as you read the Bible, ask, God, what does this say to me about you? What are you promising me? And then when you see that truth about God, when you see that promise, let me encourage you, write that down. On a 305 card, on your phone, write it down. 
Memorize it. Talk to your family, your friends, other people in the church. Encourage them with that truth. My wife just did that with me yesterday. She, she, was, she was excited about what God was teaching her in Psalm 127. She came to me, and she encouraged me with what she was saying about God, and I needed that. We need each other in that. What does this teach me about God? What is he promising? Write it down, memorize it, talk about it. Hold fast to Christ, who is our anchor. Number three, third application. Submit to God's loving discipline. Submit to God's loving discipline. Now, I want to begin here and say one of the things that this passage teaches us is that we cannot draw a straight line from a specific suffering or a specific disability and a specific sin. Well, I know that person's sick because he sinned. I know they got the coronavirus because they sinned. You don't know that. That's above our pay grade. God knows that's above our pay grade to know. And so Jesus corrects that assumption in verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents that he was born blind, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Friends, those who play God and assume that they know why someone's sick or suffering or who has a disability, mm, must not have enough faith. That person is no better than Job's miserable comforters who assume they know everything, and they don't. So with that in mind, I think what this text also teaches, though, is that because God is sovereign, even though we can't draw a straight line from specific sin to specific suffering, this text also shows us that because God is in control, because God is sovereign over all things, he can use hardship for our good. Our sovereign God, our good God, our all-powerful God can use the trials that we go through to wean us off of our sinful self-reliance. He can use the trial you're going through right now to break our grip from the idol that we're trusting in that is leading us to death. In his love, he can use the trial to break us free from that grip so that we trust him again. Hebrews 12, 5 through 7 says it this way, as an encouragement. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons and daughters. Trials can be hard. Sickness that won't go away, injustice that, is, that goes unanswered for a while, hostility from the world for following Jesus, mockery from the world for loving Jesus, events that happen in life that frustrate us and we just can't explain. Why did the water main break? I don't know. In times like these, instead of giving into grumbling, we should ask God, what would you have me learn in this? We've been going through this pandemic for a year and a half. Don't forget to ask that question. God, what would you have me learn from this? I don't like it. It's painful. I'm going to pray that you bring it to an end. But God, are there things that I'm holding on to that I need to let go of for my good? Are there things that I'm trusting in other than you that you're, you're weaning me from that I might trust you wholly? If you see those things, as you read his word and talk to others and pray, let it go. Trust in him. Submit to God's loving discipline. Why? No discipline seems pleasant at, a, at the time. It's painful. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12, verse 11. Last application, number four. Love Christ, not the world. Love Christ, not the world. I think because so many people looked at the blind man and assumed, well, he's blind because he sinned, or maybe his parents sinned. I think that was kind of the, the common thinking of the day. Many people likely avoided the man as he begged on the streets because they assumed that he was cursed of God. So put yourself in his shoes. That's an awful lot. And on top of that, in the first century, if you're blind, that likely meant you had no job. That's why he's out begging, verse 8. And to add insult to injury, the synagogue, which was the social, political, judicial center for the Jewish people, to be kicked out of the synagogue would have felt like death. It's no small matter. 
And so in the eyes of the world, at this point in time, in the eyes of the world, this blind man is a nobody. And after Jesus gives him physical sight, where's Jesus? Most of chapter 9, he's gone. We don't know where he's at. He disappears until the end when he finds the man. Why does he disappear? Can't say for sure, but what's interesting is at the end of chapter 8, the Jews were ready to kill Jesus in the temple, pick up stones to kill him, and Jesus leaves the temple at the end of chapter 8. But a temple without Jesus is just a building. In John 2.19, Jesus made it clear that he came to replace the temple. The temple pointed forward to Jesus. He came to be God's temple, to be the place where sinful man can dwell with a holy God. And so, yes, the blind man may be kicked out of the temple by the Pharisees. But Jesus, who is the true temple, welcomes him in. Friends, if you're tempted to feel sorry for the blind man when he's kicked out of the temple, you got to understand that he ends up with the greater treasure. We should not feel sorry for him. We should pity the Pharisees who end chapter 9 still blind in their sin. Do you feel overlooked by the world? Are there times that, like this blind man, you are reviled by the world for trusting in Jesus? Have you been persecuted because you're a Christian? Brother or sister, just as Jesus took the initiative to find this man, he comes to us. He sought you out when you were spiritually blind, when I was spiritually blind. And he gave his eyes to see. And though the world might overlook you and mock you and be ashamed of you, Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother, to call you his sister. So do not be ashamed of Christ. Boast in him. Center your life around him. Take glorify in him. The praise of man, the acceptance of this world, and all that this world has to offer us is only an empty cistern. In the end, we will not regret having trusted Christ and followed following him. What we will do is we will rejoice that we have been, by God's grace, have received, like this blind man, the greater reward, the better treasure than anything that this world could offer us. Love Christ, not this world. Let's pray together.